In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Oh, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. Uh, I get to say that to you now. I actually will not be here for Christmas Eve service. Brian is going to be leading it. I think this is the first one I've missed in probably 10 years, something like that. But uh, we're going to be up in Pennsylvania for a couple of weeks visiting with Catherine's family and enjoying Christmas with them. And we haven't been able to do a Christmas Eve with them in quite some time. So Brian is going to do Christmas Eve. So come, It'll be a great candlelight service. So, but I won't be here to say Merry Christmas to you, so i got to get them in now while I can. You know, speaking of Christmas, this week I kind of took a trip down memory lane. My daughter-in-law, Jill, uh, asked us for pictures of our son Jacob when he was a little child up through the years at Christmas time because she was wanting to decorate the house. They were having a Christmas party, and there's a tradition in their family of, of putting pictures out through the years at Christmas time. And so we started going through all the pictures and the picture albums and the ones on the hard drives here, there, everywhere. And, and it was really a lot of fun, you know, picking out these different Christmas pictures through the years from his first Christmas. I found a picture of him with my brother holding him, and who's you know, deceased. And that was just, I mean, I started getting sentimental and all this kind of stuff. But in the process of doing all that, I ran across some pictures from a family vacation in the uh, spring break of 2008. March 2008, uh, we uh, loaded up the truck and the car with a, a tent and, you know, Dutch oven and a grilled. Uh, it was our first camping trip as a family. And I might say it was our only camping trip as a family, right? And, uh, you know, I, as much money as I spent on all that gear, we could have taken a really nice cruise to only use it once. But, uh, you know, I, I was looking through the pictures and, and I loved it. You know, we pitched a tent and we had air mattresses and, you know, it was caveman cooking at its best. And, uh, you know, we, we, we were up at Tomoka State Park and we canoed and we did all of these things. But, uh, you know, when it was all done at the end of the week, we were loading everything up and we were driving back. Catherine turned to me and she said, uh, next time you can just drop me and little Jerry at the Marriott with an indoor pool and a hot tub, right? Uh, so quick poll, quick poll. If it's tent camping, you know, pitching a tent and camping or Marriott with the pool. If you are a Marriott with the pool and hot tub type person, that's your idea of vacation. Raise your hand. Okay. All right, how many of you are the tent? Give me the tent. Okay, Man, we're pretty evenly, but I think the majority of you agree with, with Catherine. More families agree with Catherine, but the Segra Lewises have more kids, so that, that outvotes a lot of you right there. So uh, 
you know. Yeah, you know, uh, tent camping is something else, and you get all the fun of the chiggers and the mosquitoes and the smoke in your face and the, the air mattresses deflating and the, and the rain and all those great memories, right? Uh, but there's also a lot of fun there. You know, you get to sit across the fire. You're unplugged from, at least if you're remote enough, from all the distractions that modern society gives us. And you get to reconnect with one another and commune. And, and I mean, it's hard to beat being out at night under the stars with no lights and, you know, cooking and, and you know, whatever, and just enjoying yourself. It's hard, to, it's hard to beat that, right? Playing the harmonica, that's Randy's over here playing the harmonica, right? It's hard to beat that. Uh, for us, uh, you know, pitching a tent and camping, that has visions of vacation. This wasn't the case for the Israelites. You know, pitching a tent uh, had a much deeper, more profound meaning for them. It was part of their, their heritage, part of the national ethos of their nation was built around tents and looking back at the tents. They even had a feast called the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was like where they would build a little mini tent and they would remember all the years that they had been as a nation leaving Egypt in the wilderness, camping in tents, for decades, and then coming into the promised land, and still, for many of them, living in tents. And this is something that John is touching on in these early verses, that, that national shared memory that the Israelites had. In fact, if you go back to the, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, you know, they're, they are camped outside of Mount Sinai. And already Moses has gone up and he's gotten the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down, he sees them engaging in idolatry and he shatters the, the Ten Commandments, right? God is with them. The presence of God is with them by a, a cloud at night and a pillar of fire by the day. They, there's this very vivid experience outside of the, the, at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 33, uh, Moses goes to the tent of meeting. What he had done is he took a tent and he pitched it outside the camp of the Israelites. And he would go to that tent in order to meet with God and the people would watch that pillar of fire or the cloud of God come and then descend into that, temp that tent. And, and Moses would interact with God. And the scripture said that when Moses would walk to the tent of meeting, everybody would come outside to their tent, the flap of their tent, right? And uh, they would watch him go. And when he would enter and they would see the presence of God descend into that tent, they would bow and they would worship while Moses was there. And one of those days in, in Exodus chapter 33, God tells him at the tent of meeting, he says, I want you to tell everyone, pitch their tents, pack, pack it all up. We're about to move to the promised land. I'm gonna give them a land filled with milk and honey and a great future, and they're, they, they're ready to go. And I want them to go up there and I'm gonna take care of everything. And, and Moses responds in this way. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. This is one of many tent episodes 
and the national heritage and history of the Israelites. And that tent backdrop is important to John, as in verse 14, when he says, the word became his flesh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally what he says is that the word, the word is God, the word made, became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us. He pitched his tent, he pitched his tabernacle among us, right in the middle of us. God became flesh, pitched his tent, right in the very middle of our camp. There's an image there that you can see, right? Even in our little vacations, when we have multiple, maybe you go with multiple families and the tents are all set up and there's a, a special sense of community that happens now that you're all together around the fire, you've pitched your tents together, a conversation and interaction and relationships are built. And God does this here. He pitches his tent in the middle, right in the middle of us. This is what we know as the incarnation of Christ. Remember last summer, we looked at wonderful words and we had all kinds of words. One of them that I almost did was incarnation. The word incarnation means God with us, that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God. He takes on flesh. He now pitches his tent right in the middle of us. This is the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word took on flesh, pitched his tent right in the middle of us. Why is that important? Why is this idea of the incarnation so important? It's because of what was done and what we receive through this act. It's through the incarnation of Jesus that we both perceive the glory, the grace, the truth of God. It's also through the incarnation that we receive God's glory, grace, and truth. We're going to kind of take this passage and study it in light of those last few words. Let's start with glory. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. We have seen His splendor, His brilliance, His renown, His completeness, His majesty, His honor. We have seen His majesty, the glory of the one and only. Some of your translations will say the only begotten Son of God. And and only begotten gives some people the idea that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist and he was created. And that's not what that phrase only begotten means. It isn't saying that, G that Jesus was generated or begotten like, you know, Adam begot Cain and Abel. No, that word begotten there, the NIV's done a great job, means one and only, the unique one, the preeminent one, the firstborn, that one who's unlike any other, the one and only who came from the Father, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. You know, at that temple, or at that, that tent, excuse me, where the glory of God would descend, they call that the Shekinah glory of God. It was brilliant, and so brilliant was the glory of God that Moses, as he would interact with God at that point in history, he would come out and his face would be glowing. Remember those of you who read your Old Testament? Remember that? His face would be so bright that the people would say, oh, hey, cover your face, and they didn't have sunglasses, so he had to wear a veil over his face, 
Otherwise, it was too bright, that Shekinah glory of God. And this passage is saying, listen, Jesus is the embodiment of the Shekinah glory of God. He is the, he is the glory, that all that magnificence, that brilliance, it's all been distilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that glory was something that the Israelites enjoyed. They saw it in the tabernacle. They saw it in the temple. When the temple of Solomon was dedicated at a particular time, the priests had to withdraw from the holy place because the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So when John talks about Jesus manifesting the fullness of God's glory, what does he mean? Because Jesus wasn't walking around with like a glowing halo. He wasn't like Moses who was so bright that he had to go around wearing a veil. So what did he mean when he says that, that Jesus is full of the glory of God, manifesting the glory of God? What does that mean? Well, Later in the book of, in the gospel of John, he'll speak to it in different ways. He'll, he'll say that Jesus manifested and revealed the glory of God through his miracles. The very next chapter, when Jesus does that one miracle that where he, did, he turns water into wine, we read that this miraculous sign at Cana was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, but it certainly wasn't the last time. He will do many miracles, and as a result, the disciples will believe in him, and others will believe in him. And so, Jesus was manifesting the glory of God through these miracles, but most significantly, Jesus manifests the glory of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus begins to speak about this in John chapter 12, when he begins to bring the disciples in the loop as to what was going to befall him and why he had come to earth in the first place. In John 12, verse 23, Jesus replied, And now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And he goes on to talk about how he would be dying, how he would be crucified. And all of this is to manifest the glory of God to creation and to his people. And it was also for the purpose of restoring the glory that each and every one of us lost through the fall, through sin. And Jesus died to restore that glory that has been lost by us and by humanity through sin. We were created in the image of God. That means that we were invested with a certain element of God's glory. The psalmist tells us we're created just a, a little lower than the angels themselves, endued with glory and honor because we're created in the image of God. Sin mars that glory. And so a vital aspect of our salvation and our sanctification is to see that, our, that glory is being brought back to us. It's being restored through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
That glory marred by sin is being restored and renewed through our salvation and through the sanctifying effort of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the very same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree of glory. And all of this is through the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus died, came and took on flesh so that the glory that is ours created in the image of God could be restored after being marred and destroyed by sin. Through the incarnation of Jesus, we see the glory of God in his life. We perceive it, but we also receive it. And so when we trust in him, we are given the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in our lives. And that indwelling spirit begins that process of transforming us little bit by little bit so that more and more we reflect the glory of God. It's gradual for many of us. Sometimes we wonder, is anything happening really changing us? But it is happening And ultimately, we go from a place of spiritual darkness and destruction, and through Christ and our salvation, we more and more begin to mirror who He is so that that brilliance, that light, that glory of God in Jesus Christ begins to be reflected through us to a world that's lost in darkness. And so it is through the incarnation of Jesus that we perceive and receive the glory of God. We also perceive and receive the grace and truth of God. It says in verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A few moments ago, I talked about Moses in Exodus chapter 33, right? You know, he says, hey, would you, Lord, would you show me your glory? And, and God continues and answers him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And then if you you fast forward a few verses, the next day comes along, and you know, he tells Moses to cut out some new tablets because Moses had smashed the first set of tablets. And he says, come back up the mountain. I'm going to reissue the law to you, but come by yourself and So Moses does all of those things and he goes up Mount Sinai and when he arrives, the presence of God descends and he he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And that's a hymn that many of us know. He puts him in a place so that when God passes by and reveals his glory to him, it's not a direct point, point sight. It has to be filtered. It has to be obscured in some way. Otherwise, it would kill him. And so he tucks him away in a place where he can see the residual glory of God as God's presence passes by. And and this is what happens as we pick up in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord God. He's revealing his name to him, merciful and gracious. 
long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. That, that word goodness is the, the loving kindness, the loyal love, the faithful love, the, all the, the love and the grace and the mercy that God gives to his people. And he reveals all of this grace and love and truth. Does this sound familiar? Right? This is exactly what John 1 says we receive in Jesus Christ. We perceive the grace and the truth of God through Jesus Christ. How does this happen? How do we perceive and receive the grace, the truth that comes through Jesus? Literally, verse 16 says, from out of his fullness, or from, or out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace in place of grace. That idea there, through Jesus, that we have received grace and more grace and even more grace, has really kind of two primary meanings, right? The pri- or two meanings, one's primary, one's secondary. The primary meaning is comparing, John is comparing what Jesus does for us in comparison to Moses. Remember, he said, you know, through Moses we receive the law, but through Jesus comes grace and truth. And this doesn't mean that grace didn't come through Moses at all. The old covenant was filled with the grace of God. God coming and dwelling with his people was an incredibly gracious act on God's part. God giving us the law so that we could discern our own sinfulness and our need for salvation. This is an example of God's grace. God's grace is throughout the Old Testament. The law itself is good and holy, and Jesus didn't come to you know, uh, do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but to complete it. Nevertheless, when you compare the old covenant that Moses is the mediator of and the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of, it's clear that through Jesus, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. Right? In the Old, Test, in the old covenant, Moses met the thirst of God's people by striking a rock and water would come out and, and their physical thirst was satisfied. But in the new covenant through Jesus, he brings about springs of everlasting life so that we're never thirsty again. You know, Moses, he, he, through him, manna comes down from heaven and every morning they gathered up Krispy Kreme donuts and they ate these things, right? For the, for the sustenance of their physical bodies. But Jesus says, I, I am so much better than Krispy Kreme donuts. I am the bread of life that ensures you have eternity being reconciled to your God. In the old covenant, um, the temple was a building and the presence of God was in that building. But now through Jesus, we are the temple of God and we have within us the presence of God through the Holy Spirit himself. In that old covenant, the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again Every year, the Day of Atonement, every week, different sacrifices for forgiveness, and they, they all pointed to a, a, an ultimate reality that they looked for. And that ultimate reality is Jesus, who sacrificed himself once for all time so that no more sacrifices are needed, and through him, we no longer have a shadow of the truth. We have the way, the truth, the life. 
And so primarily, when he talks about receiving blessings one upon another, upon another, receiving grace in place of grace and more grace, he's talking about first and foremost that comparison of what Jesus has done for us in comparison to what Moses did with the old covenant. But there is a very practical secondary meaning, and that is out of Jesus's fullness, we receive fresh, unending, daily grace from God. One blessing after another. We've all received one blessing after another. Grace upon grace. We can relate to that, what, what John is saying here. If, you know, we all live on the Space Coast, and I think at any given time, most of us, I imagine, have been down to the beach and we've watched the, the waves come in, and at particular times, right, the waves are just one on top of another, on top of another. In fact, sometimes the waves are so plentiful, one right on top of another, crashing upon themselves on the beach. You really can't go into the water unless you're a little bit nuts, right? Just wave after wave after wave after wave. And that's the picture that we have here. Because of the incarnation, because Jesus took on flesh, and it's now God with us. We have grace and more grace, what grace on top of grace, on top of grace, like the waves replenishing themselves, crashing down upon us every single day. That's what we have in Christ. The grace of salvation and the grace that keeps us saved. The grace that we need in order to, to grow in our spiritual life and to be transformed into the image of Christ so that the glory of God can be manifested in us. The grace that forgives all the failures and the sins and the shortcomings that were present in our life even this very week since last Sunday when we gathered together. Why does God not kick us out of his family? Grace. Why does God forgive us? Every single time when we come, sometimes for the same sin again and again, grace. Aren't you glad that God relates to us through grace? Grace upon grace. The grace to handle life's trials. The grace to handle the tribulations that come our way. The grace to handle the success and the blessings that comes our way. Grace upon grace upon grace. We've all seen it at the beach, right? those waves coming in. We've also been out there when the ocean was like a pond, right? Have you ever you've been there and it's just like dead calm? And, and I've always kind of, you know, I'm amused when I go out there on those particular days, there's always some diehard surfer or two, right? <laughs> Notice that? And what are they doing? They're just sitting out there in the middle of the ocean on their board, right? And they're just sitting and they're waiting, hoping a wave will come by that they can surf, and they wait, and they wait, and the wave doesn't come, and, but the tide comes, or the current comes, right? And pretty soon you see that surfer, you know, he's now half a mile down the beach, and he has to paddle his board and then walk back up to where his stuff is, right? A, a, a surfer without waves is not a surfer, right? He's just a guy sitting in the hot sun, sitting on his board, a lot of waves, a, a surfer can't surf. He can get in the water all he wants, but all he does is flounder. 
He's at the mercy of the tides, whatever wind might be there. You could even look at it and say, at least on that particular day, he's a failure as a surfer because he has no waves. You know, and the same is true for us as Christians. Same for, is true for every Christian who lives apart from grace. You are a floundering Christian. You, uh, at that particular moment in time, you're going to fail as a Christian. When we rely on ourselves, when we rely on our effort, when we rely on performance, when we rely on our own self-righteousness, when we rest in our own strength and our own wisdom, we're asking to just sit on our board and be taken by the tide, floundering away. That's how important grace is to us as Christians. A primary expression of this unending grace that God gives us is the glory that he is restoring and manifesting through us and perceiving that glory in Christ so that our hearts are warmed and strengthened so that when we worship, it's heartfelt, passionate worship. This is an example of God's grace showing us his glory in Christ. Is the glory of Christ, does it enthuse you? Do you delight in it? Does it empower you? Does it inspire you? Does it strengthen you? Does it feed you? For some of us, we'd have to say no. No, I don't understand what you're talking about. Or I think I understand, but I'm not experiencing it right now. Why don't we experience the glory of God in our lives in a, in a powerful way? Why does that not happen oftentimes? Well, for, for some of us, the, the, the answer is spiritual deadness. You're not experiencing the glory of God in your life because you are spiritually dead. You're not a believer. And you can be anywhere on the continuum. You can be an angry atheist about God, or, or you can be an ambivalent agnostic when it comes to Christ, or, or you may even be a pseudo-Christian who has, can say the right words and has maybe even walked an aisle and said a prayer, but there's no tangible difference in your life when it comes to the glory of God and the angry atheist and everything in between. Why does that happen? It happens because of spiritual deadness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why, why are you not perceiving the glory of God in Christ? It could very well be because you are spiritually dead. And this morning, your greatest need, if you want to see the glory of God in Christ, is for your eyes to be opened, for God to give you a certain kind of grace, that saving grace that brings new life into your life. If you've not seen the glory of God in Christ, if you don't reflect upon Christ and it stir you and do something within you, if when you come to Christ, you're, you're just, meh. He's a, he's a concept and not a real presence in your life. Your prayer has to be, God, give me eyes that can see Jesus. 
Give me a heart that can perceive who Jesus is. God, give me a heart that falls in love with you and Jesus Christ. That's the only prayer you need to bother yourself with. Because until God gives that kind of grace, eh, it'll just be a concept. But many of us, we ebb and flow with experiencing the glory of God, don't we? Sometimes, isn't it interesting how sometimes we feel so connected and close to God and everything's just, wow. And then other times it's, yeah. why does that happen? It's not because of spiritual deadness. It's due to spiritual distractions that come our way. It's Christmas time. As I was looking through those pictures, I saw gifts that had been bought through the years and experiences around the tree. And I remembered, you know, how my children would buy gifts. And of course, I have boys and they always wanted to buy presents for their mama, right? And they would save their allowance. They would do some chores. They would hit me up for cash in some way. And they would take their $3.50 and they would go into the store or whatever they had. And, and they would walk in and they would want to buy a present. And of course, they would inevitably, especially MJ, he would inevitably end up over in the jewelry section. What are you going to buy with $3.50, right? And of course, his eyes were attracted to the, to the shiny necklaces and the bracelets, the gold, the silver, and find out he didn't have enough money. And then the, you know, the sales clerk would take him down to the cabinet where you know, he had enough money. And he would look in there and something shiny would catch his eye. Let me have that bracelet or that necklace. How many of you have gotten that, right, from your kids? And, and they bring it to you with all this pride, this shiny, beautiful gold necklace, and it turns your neck green, right? <laughs> because we all know that that necklace is a counterfeit gold necklace, right? It's not real gold. It's not real silver, and that is a wonderful picture of what happens to us as Christians. We have at our disposal access to the very glory of God. And like little children, we turn from that and instead we embrace counterfeit glories. And they shine like gold and silver and they're sparkly and they catch our attention. The lust of the flesh and the temptations of the world and the pride of life and the temptations that have come from the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil put so many shiny gold and silver necklaces and bracelets all to capture our attention so that we don't realize we have the authentic thing right here. And we turn from the authentic to the counterfeit. How dumb is that? Right? And yet how many times have I turned to the counterfeit instead of the real thing? Fooled, tempted, and embrace it. That's why I need God's grace every single day. That's why you need it every single day. Because the allure of the counterfeit is so strong that we will pursue it and invest in it only to find out it doesn't deliver, it tarnishes, it <laughs> turns our neck green. It's worthless. May God give us the grace this week 
as we celebrate the birth of Christ, to keep our eyes focused on what is real, real glory, not counterfeit glories. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us, for coming, taking on flesh, being with us so that we could see the glory that you gave us in creation restored. Would you continue to do this good work in us? Would you transform us one degree by another by another so that we reflect your glory, Lord Jesus? Help us this week to not be enamored and tempted by the counterfeit glories of this world, the counterfeit glories that come through our careers, that come through our relationships, through our children, through our comfort, through our possessions, all the different ways that counterfeit glories can appear. Help us, Father, to have the wisdom to see that those things, while they are good, they are not ultimate goods. That you are the only ultimate good. And we have all we need in you, Lord Jesus, through your spirit. In your name we pray these things. Amen.